episode 88, talking about the resurrection. This is Matthew, and before we get into this conversation with Ed Atkinson, I'd like to first say welcome and thank you to those who have arrived here following my appearance on Justin Briarty's podcast, Unbelievable. Since that went out a week ago, we've had an average of about 100 extra listens per day to Still Unbelievable. Please continue to listen. We have some interesting episodes coming up. There is our conversation with Justin, which will be episode 90. We have a conversation with Tim O'Neill from History for Atheists. And we have a conversation with an author of a book on parenting through deconstruction. We are also hoping to schedule a further conversation with Mike De Virgilio to carry on the discussion he and I had on Unbelievable. If you don't know what I'm referring to, the link to the Unbelievable episode is in the show notes along with links to Ed's Doubts Allowed podcast and other topics that are referenced. This episode is the first to be published since the Unbelievable episode, so if you're a new listener, it may help with context to listen back to episode 83, as that is the episode we refer to at multiple points. As always, please do check the notes for references to items that are raised during this discussion. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable and this time I believe this is a first for us Andrew. We've had not only have we had feedback on an episode but we've had somebody so keen to give feedback but he's come on as a guest to tell us about what we said on an episode. This is definitely a first isn't it? I think what that usually means and what it means in this case is uh, we really screwed up somewhere and and we're about to be told off about it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> speak, sure speak, speak for yourself there. Me, I'm I'm never wrong. But if you want if you want to accept wrongness, that is totally on you. I will not be getting in in your way because every you time I pulled out. Yes, absolutely. Because every time I call somebody out to fact check me, I've had no feedback. So that can only mean I've been right every time. Surely there, there's no other conclusion from that, is there? So I'll tell you what, let's let the <laughs> listeners weigh in on what that means. <laughs> All right, then you can fact check that, listeners. Right. So e- enough of the tease. So we have with us uh, Ed Atkinson, who we know, Andrew and I know from days gone by, he might be new to some of our listeners. If he is new to some of our listeners, that means one thing. You have not read the book. Still unbelievable. If the name Ed Atkinson means nothing to you, that is on you. Go to the website, reasonpress.net, and you can read the book for free. Or if you want to donate a small amount of money to American atheists, you can go and buy the book for 99p over on Amazon and buy it. So welcome, Ed. How lovely to hear from you. It was a great pleasure to have your email. It's great to have you on voice. We'll introduce you properly, but say hello to our listeners. Uh, Yep. Hi. Thank you so much. It's, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you, Ed. So, Ed, you wrote the chapter on the resurrection in the book Still Unbelievable, which uh, is a response to some of your thinking on the resurrection. You've been on the podcast Unbelievable, who we existed to be a thorn in the side of. And so and you had a lovely chat on an episode of Unbelievable about the resurrection. And you're, you wrote to us after Andrew and I put out that monster episode touching three hours responding to people talking about the minimal facts about the resurrection so this is your bag this is something that you like to get your teeth into and as a quick aside on the moment of that at the beginning of that three-hour episode I put out a comment to listeners to say if three hours was too much for you or you had an opinion on three hours to feedback and let me know and I'll adjust 
my schedule and my cutting accordingly. I had a few people give feedback and pretty much everybody said they either loved long episodes or they were very happy with long episodes and they didn't feel strongly enough to ask that I make them short. So there will still be occasional very long episodes. If you digress from that feeling, if you have a stronger feeling on you'd really like them shorter and closer to two hours max, then please let me know and I'll see what I can do about keeping as many people happy as I possibly can. But for the time being, there has feedback has definitely been three hour long episodes are fine. People are very happy with that. They enjoy that kind of length to get into stuff. So there will be some episodes of that length, but they won't all be that long. Obviously, there will be still the shorter ones as well. So back to Ed. So Ed, you sent us that lovely email. You sent us a Word document full of a couple of pages of notes that you wanted to go through. I guess let's just dive in and you can talk us through about what you thought of our episodes, the points that you want to pick up and the clarifications you want to make. Thanks. I will say something to begin with in praise of our Justin, because he's we're his sort of um, followers, even if we don't agree with him. And he did a much better job of presenting this minimal facts argument for the resurrection than the podcasters that you were responding to. What, what should we call them just to make it easy? In our discussion? Night and Rose. OK, Night and Rose. I'll try and remember. So that. It's from the Night and Rose show podcast. The link to their podcast will be in our resurrection episode. It's where we respond to the minimal facts. I don't have the episode number immediately to hand, but it's a, by the time you're listening to this, it'll be about half a dozen episodes back. 83. 83. Thank you, Ed. I guess I'll give you a little bit of history. I, I was um, an atheist when I grew up and I became a Christian as a teenager and uh, got into church leadership. It was it was in a kind of charismatic evangelical sort of setting in Britain. I wasn't young earth on any of that far but uh it was relatively conservative and i did get doubts and decided I, they were growing and growing and i decided to step away i wanted it to be true but i would step away try and be neutral look at all everything so that was in the mid 90s and of course the resurrection was a big uh, one of the kind of big five or so of the topics to work through after many years actually i'm in range of oxford and i joined an oxford theological college library and they were very kind lending me books and everything as i did all this work i did end up thinking okay there's just not enough there to believe and then i've in the years since i've got more and more i suppose it's sort of washed out of my system more and more confident of that there isn't a god and certainly that christianity isn't a true religion in Oxford, I was where I found out about Unbelievable, and I was a sort of the right kind of person to be put up against. Do you remember Oz Guinness? He yeah, was pushing a book, and they thought someone who was all fresh to it all would be quite a good idea. So that's my introduction to Unbelievable, and I really liked it and jumped in, and I've enjoyed all the episodes, or most of them, um, ever since. And I was around, and I got invited to talk with Tony Costa, who's a I think Canadian apologist about the resurrection and so I've done some work on that and then the still unbelievable book came around I was quite keen to join in with that and do the resurrection chapter and now you also do your own podcast as well Ed oh thank you for mentioning that Matt we're called Doubts Aloud and Andrew White who's been on the show a few times I think with Greg Boyd and Nabil Qureshi and Francis Janus has also been on a few times and we're three of us and we do podcasting together we try to be respectful to christians but we're not trying to be balanced 
we we give the kind of I suppose you could say skeptical view. We have Christian guests who we're very nice to and don't have big barnies with. We just listen to them and have fun conversations. So your quick note on your podcast saying so it's just to remind everybody who might be searching for it. It's allowed as in noisy, not allowed as in permission. No, no. Uh, yes, yes. Sorry, yes. Allowed as in noise, not allowed as in permission. You're right. But obviously it's a pun on that. That's allowed. And you are. You're definitely nicer than we are. Because <laughs> I've had to put the unclean flag on a couple of our episodes. And I'm certainly very happy to leave curse words and expletives in the edit. You guys are definitely much more pleasant and much more mild mannered than, than we are, but no less great to listen to. Oh, thank you. So this is the resurrection and the modern way in evangelical circles is to argue for the resurrection using minimal facts. And the idea here, which I think needs to be just really cleaned up a bit so people know what's going on. Obviously, the author of all this is Gary Habermas from decades and decades ago. Mm-hmm. And he did such a good job, I guess, that it's become more and more influential. And then he's teamed up with Mike Lacona in more recent decades. So they are the big two that are associated with it. And the idea is that you almost sweep away the Gospels and say, well, they're contested. Almost any story in the Gospels, you'll find someone who will say it probably didn't happen uh, within scholarship, that is. And Gary thought, well, let's just pick the, the facts that nearly all scholars agree with, both conservative scholars and non-conservative Christian scholars and agnostics and unbelievers. There, there's a whole range in there. Obviously, most of them are Christians of some kind. But let's go for one that nearly everybody agrees with. It's quite a wacky position to disagree with. Uh, and so, for example, the big one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. That That is something that only uh, someone who you could call a scholar would be Rob, Robert, Robert Price, I think, and um, Tim Carrier would be the only ones who would say wouldn't agree with that because they don't think Jesus existed. But pretty well everyone in scholarship yeah. will go with that. Yeah, Richard Carrier would be another one. Oh, did I say something else? I, must, I, must, oh, I said Tim Carrier say, or something? Look, I if you did, I just, it's, it's yeah. my... Carrier and Price are the famous two. Um, but I think the point, though, here is a point that I would want to make at this point, though, is crucifixion. It wasn't unusual. The Romans killed quite a few people by crucifixion and quite a few people who claimed special gifts for themselves. So crucifixion in and of itself does nothing to establish the personhood of Jesus. Yeah, but you needed to establish the resurrection. Yes, that is very true. So that's why it's a minimal facts. Then there's another one which is pretty, you, yeah, I, I would say uh, in actually in opposition to what you seem to be saying on your episode, that uh, appearances or traditions of appearances that go early are accepted by all, or, you know, nearly all. So James Crossley, is a, he's a complete non-Christian and, and he says it famously said it was like golden evidence or something so much better than evidence that you'd have for, say, even the Sermon on the Mount. And so we go down these lists and the idea is that you don't ever include in this list something that people don't overwhelmingly agree with. The conversion of Paul is another one. And another one is that the church became established. So there's really not a whole lot more than that. There is this thing about James we can talk about. And what there isn't is the empty tomb. This is the first thing I'd like us to dive into, if that's okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure how much win- wintry rose no night and rose uh, it's wintry night and desert rose yes so night and rose were being clear on this but the by the definition of minimal facts the empty tomb cannot be considered one habermas 
has said on Unbelievable, he, it changes a bit, but the, the last I've heard was a while ago on Unbelievable in 2015. He said between a quarter and a third of scholars will disagree with the empty tomb. So that's right. between 66 and 75 percent will agree. His website, meanwhile, gives the proportion of scholars who are conservative and non-conservative. I think you had a, a different term. I think sceptical scholars, I think, and other scholars. Well, he splits it up between conservative scholars and others. So there'll be non-conservative Christians, agnostics, unbelievers, all the rest of it. And 75% of scholars in his method are in the conservative bracket. If 75% of scholars are conservative and only up to 75% of scholars agree that the tomb was empty, then this is not going to be a minimal fact. This is just something that conservative Christians believe. Right. And the background here, of course, I, I may, you've probably mentioned it many times over the years on your podcast, that conservative scholars work in seminaries where it's a condition of employment that you have certain views and that even uh, famously Mike Lacona had to resign from his post because he suggested that the dead rising and walking the streets of Jerusalem one of Andrew's favorite passages was metaphorical so even by saying that he lost his job so it really is not remarkable that you're finding a lot of scholars who are conservatives towing the line of the empty tomb. I mean, it's just stands to reason. So that this empty tomb thing is completely not a minimal fact. And if an apologist wants to convince somebody that it happened, they've got to go back to all the details of the arguments and not just say, oh, it's a minimal fact. Uh, so we don't need to argue for it. Expanding on from that, hasn't Habermas also said that he changes the number of points that he uses according to the, the circumstances? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I wouldn't say that's a weakness. It's just if you're doing a five hour lecture, you might include a few more. Um, right. <laughs> if you're doing a presentation to a school, you probably just do a few. Yeah. So, yeah. But the I think well, the thing, though, to pull out of what you've just said is being a scholar in a specific educational institution that requires as membership or rather employment adherence to a predefined set of beliefs is problematic and does weaken the claim that, that you've got all these scholars who say that this happened because in some cases they have to. Exactly. And, yeah. and one more thing alongside that, we are three skeptics. I think largely we would all support the idea that there's likely no God, or, or at least that we're not fully convinced, right? But just among the three of us, there would be a range of how strongly we held to that idea. And so even if Gary's right, and let's use the, the top number, 75% of scholars, except in the empty tomb, if, if we just, it doesn't tell us anything about uh, how convinced that proportion of scholars is. I, I don't get terribly worked up. Although it probably sounds like it. If, if somebody said, oh, you know, 75% of scholars think there was me. Okay. But it, it's really just a sort of way to wow people with numbers. There's not a lot of grading when you say something like that. Uh, and there probably should be. Right? There, there should probably be some more nuance other than just this 75% of scholars think there was an empty team or whatever. Just being aware that that doesn't tell us a lot about that body of scholars. Any fact that's 
I would accept and is traditionally used by Lacona and Hammermas and people and Justin would be well in the 90s, high 90s, maybe percent. And what we find, what Mike um, Karen Habermas is doing is looking to see the proportion of papers that make arguments uh, in favour of something or against something or or clearly have the view of something such as appearances were part of the tradition early on and whatever. Right. On the matter of papers, is it fair to say that when you look at the numbers of papers that are written on this matter, you're going to expect a greater proportion of those papers to come from believing scholars and believing institutions versus sceptical scholars and sceptical institutions, because this isn't going to be something that you're going to find many sceptical scholars investigating and writing about. The people who are most interested in this subject matter are those who already believe it to be fact. So they're going to be the ones that write about it more. So isn't there a risk here that you're just picking up the dross, so to speak? You're picking up the the, the sheer numbers of people who are writing pro passage because that kind of paradigm is what's going to exist anyway yeah i think that's fair it's still a reasonable way of proceeding uh, however you measure it if you're being honest you're able to tell us what of these things are just generally accepted in scholarship of all kinds and which ones are disputed right are you familiar with peter renz above normal people and yes I, sort of I listened to his podcast for a while and i i just got bored of it <laughs> i yeah. found it so uninteresting so i've given up but i know who he is yeah 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 so he, he's uh ex-evangelical very strong well he's, he's strong in his faith still and, and very strong on being following scholarship and he's pretty scathing of the kind of scholars that would be in theological seminaries and Right. Bound by job to say the right thing. He, he says it's not really scholarship in his view. I was quite surprised at how strong he said it all. Yeah, that, that, that is quite strong. Yeah. OK, I want to point out a typical error that you get with kind of apologists who are not fully into the subject. And I think Knight and Rosa are in this category and it particularly applies to the appearances. So scholars will say as a pretty well agreed fact that some early disciples had experiences which were reported as appearances. And so appearances become minimal facts. And then they start to say, OK, how do we explain all these minimal facts with different ideas? And they will suddenly leap into a gospel story. So they would assume that the gospel story, say, of Luke uh, meeting the disciples and walking through walls and eating fish in their presence is agreed as a minimal fact. But it absolutely isn't. The, the minimal fact is that there were some events that are reported as appearances and there was some kind of event that, that had influence on people. And by accepting minimal facts, we are not in any way accepting that Luke's story is accurate in any way at all. There's a question I'd like to ask on that then, uh, Ed, because presumably that's true for all of them. So we've got the, the appearance in the upper room. We've got talking with the two people on the road to Emmaus, I believe it is. And then there's the uh, meeting of the 500 and there's a couple of other appearances. So although there are, we accept that there are reported appearances, what we're not saying is any particular specific one of those appearances is accepted as fact. Uh, yeah. What I'm leading to on that is if all of these specific appearances are deniable, then why are we accepting in any way at all 
that reported appearances are a minimal fact. What I think we're doing is accepting 1 Corinthians 15, that creed, as not something Paul made up, but something that he is relaying from the Jerusalem apostles. Right. Who made uh, it up? Uh, well, OK. So I'm being cheeky now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, being, I'm being cheeky, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The appearance to Peter, I think few people would say Peter didn't have some experience. The appearance to the eleven. I, so when I you think, say the appearance to Peter, are you talking about the feed my sheep bit? No, no, I'm bit? talking that there's a list in 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning. I'm uh, wondering if it's worth. Yeah, this is, is such a key passage. It might be worth finding it. So I'm going to quickly get there myself. The passage has uh, a kind of top and tail, which speaks of Paul saying this is a tradition he received and didn't isn't just passing on. And it also has this creed, which doesn't include the 500. So don't worry about that. I've now got it in front of me. I'm using the New International Version. Yeah, but that's the version I've got in front of me. So <laughs> you're talking about from verse 12. I'm no way right. But I'll start with verse one. Right. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken to stand. OK, so that's what we're talking about. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. OK, that's verse three. OK, and then, and see, I read that and my mind immediately says, OK, well, that's hearsay. Well, OK, so I need to make the argument because this is an argument that, that people like James Crossley, who I really like. Right. A, a Yorkshire, Yorkshireman, which makes it makes him a good start. <laughs> and, and he was never a Christian and just got interested in it all. And uh, he's, he's done a lot of work on New Testament stuff. This is the sort of thing he would he would go with. So that I've topped it and I'm going to tail it if I can find out. OK, so he's talking about other apostles in verse 10 and 11. And he said, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. And the other uh, apostles, I'm pretty certain he's referring to the Jerusalem kind of ex-disciple apostles, people like Peter, and then James, who we'll be talking about more in detail later. That's what he's saying. It, it is a bit contentious because in his letter to the Galatians, he talks about Jesus said it to me directly, and then he kind of checked it out with the apostles in Jerusalem. But um, we needn't go there. It's all, it's all a bit unclear, and I've never got to the bottom of it. But I'm quite happy to take this passage here at face value that he has been told and he's passed on to them a key tradition. Right. So going back to what I said earlier, uh, verse three, for what I've received, I've passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to this, the scriptures. That has a nice little flow to it. Yeah. And then the same flow is repeated and that he appeared to Cephas, which is, Peter, Peter. Yeah. he prayed to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and after that, I am told that this is clearly like a song you said in your episode on it, or a creed. And so this is a snippet of literature that scholars have identified is not typical Paul, either phraseology or whatever. Certainly up to, and then the Twelve, and then it looks like Paul has put in a thing about the 500. And then after the 500, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Right. So you're saying that there's literature that says that this could well be a rhyme in the original? It certainly has a sort of a structure 
to it. It feels of, like it has a flow. Repetition. It feels like you could read it with a certain timber, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. But you'd have to not take out the 500 bit and then take out the bit at the end. Last of all, he appeared to me. But the rest of it has this 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 flow to it. OK, so that sounds then like it's also evidence for later editing. Well, Paul, all the way through quotes and quotes, he, he mostly quotes the Old Testament, but that's just his, his style. He draws in material to back up what he's saying oh, that, right. that his lead readers will be already familiar with. OK, so if we take a if we take an approach, then that this letter written penned by Paul is he pens it and then he makes reference to something that he's bringing to the readers and then he pens out this rhyme or this creed that he's been taught to say and he writes that down word for word and then carries on with his letter so this is this has been given a specific timber so that it's easier to memorize yes that's right before paul got hold of it according to what paul is saying yeah Uh, that kind of also fits pretty well with the way oral tradition was carried. Oral tradition often had a sort of element of, of a barred story to make it easy. And there was still a lot of uh, mouth-to-ear tradition uh, at that time. So I, I wouldn't think that it would be terribly unusual for something that, that is a creed or, or might be made a creed. I don't think it would be terribly unusual for it to have a kind of sing-song quality about it. No, and it yeah. doesn't automatically mean that it's false just because it's presented in that style either. Yeah, right. good. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> <laughs> were you worried about how far I was straying to the um to the mythicist line? Were you? Uh, just that because it sounded like a song doesn't mean that it's it's any less important or, or accurate than other things. I think the the early Christians seem to be really keen on their creeds. Yeah. Paul quotes creeds vastly more than he quotes Jesus. Right. OK, but it does, though, mean by necessity that detail is left out because it, it's simplified in order to fit into that structure. You can't fit a whole story with minute detail into this kind of structure. It has to be by necessity, very um, high level and, and very abridged. Yeah. Which then leaves scope for when people try to expand the detail later for that's when the myths start creeping in. Yes, that's right. Could be. I have no idea. I don't think anyone really knows for sure about these things. How much someone like Mark writing in Rome might have actually tapped into stories that were generated by the community based on a creed being expanded in the way that you say. Who knows? Yeah. But this is what we've got. This is a letter of Paul that is completely uncontested. So we're on pretty solid ground. People say this is within two or three years of the crucifixion. I think are overextending it, but it's certainly much earlier than when Paul visited Corinth. We can say this went back to as, as a creed used in the church. I want to push back slightly on the idea of being on solid ground here. I don't doubt that it's creed. That's not the solid ground. But I do think that wherever we, we find a creed, and there's some notion like, um, well, you know, God, uh, this, this, this Jesus appeared to Peter, and you know, then he appeared to those 12 people over there, uh, you know, all, all the ex-disciples who were apostles, etc., uh, and last of all to me. One of the things that we don't have is independent accounts from 12 apostles. The New Testament, uh, the bulk of it's written by actually remarkably few people. It is not the case that anywhere near all 12 apostles make individual 
appearances in terms of their own writing. I made this point in the Knight and Rose show about the 500. Yes, I I agree with you on on all of that. Okay, all right. Well, then I'm not going to belabor the point. It'll just make this carry on for, for no apparent reason. While I agree that we're on solid ground to think that this is a creed, I don't think we're on solid ground to think that the creed actually bears out some set of facts that should be taken more seriously than we have already. Okay. I do need to clarify what I mean by solid ground. No, no, well, I wasn't picking on you, just me pushing back a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, making uh, the claim this is solid ground, so I need to explain what I mean. Oh, sure. And what I mean is that this is a very good window on the thoughts and beliefs of the early church, very early church. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly that is the case. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I agree. We know what they thought. So it seems that resurrection belief is incredibly early and it seems that resurrection belief is based on appearances. Yeah. Are you happy with those two? Yes. This one is particularly difficult for me. Um, and, and you might just say, and, and you might be right, Andrew, you're, you've surpassed skepticism and, and, <laughs> and the cynicism. But, but I don't think I am. While I think that there were individuals who were convinced that they had seen Jesus, I don't see any reason to credit those claims, this sort of experience that they say they had, with actually having seen Jesus. Now, now why would I say so? Well, I have friends who think that they have been captured by aliens multiple times. I mean, I actually have friends who who tell this story at dinner parties. I have known Muslim friends uh, in the past who think that they have had supernatural experiences, not necessarily being visited by Allah, mind you, but supernatural experiences. And, And so, Ed, my only point is this. If I go down the road, of crediting this with uh, with an actual appearance of Jesus, that that's actually what's backing up, then I see no reason that I wouldn't have to be equally epistemologically committed to acceptance that I had friends who were actually captured by aliens, et cetera. Do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, I'm okay. not I'm not saying these are, that Jesus appeared to people, just that that's what the belief that Jesus had appeared to people was what was driving it. Okay. And and that would imply that some people believed that Jesus had appeared to them individually and were telling others about it. That That's how I see it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I've got a friend who, tragically, his, his wife died of cancer, I suppose, most of 10 years ago now. She kind of came to him, touched, his, uh, held his hands, and he found it a really meaningful experience. But I would have thought if you, well, no, I wouldn't. I've never pressed him on it to, to know. In fact, I've kept so far apart. I've, I, he hasn't told me this directly. He's, he told my wife and she told me about this experience. So that's the kind of thing that happens a lot. Mm. And they're such tender stories, right? So these friends that tell me they have been taken by aliens, they're very serious. These aren't the, the kind aliens that um, take you and show you the cosmos and, uh, you know, introduce you to their E.T. relatives and uh, you have a nice meal and they bring you home. That's not their story. And so the night they first told me about it, we were sitting out on their back patio and there were tears involved in, in these sequential alien abductions. I mean, and so it's hard, very hard to have friends like that. 
and not see the trauma and not and you know and and then push mm. back like like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We have these tender stories, and tender stories create in us emotions where we feel accepting of the person, if not the story, and that can become a kind of fact because uh, no one's pushing back on it. In fact, I've never told this story until just now. Yeah. On, on Still Unbelievable. So they tell their story. And uh, that, by the way, was back in 2006. I am only just now speaking about it in 2022. So as I, and I don't know anybody that's ever pressed them on it. No, there may well be friends who have said, okay, look, mm-hmm. I know this is very traumatic for you, but it doesn't seem reasonable to me. But I didn't yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get too far distracted here, but very personal, very quick anecdote on this. I've never told this story publicly. So um, congratulations on being the first guys to hear this. But these things do happen when one of my grandmothers died, what, 20 years ago. She hadn't even been dead a year. And the phone rang one day and I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And my grandmother's voice came out of the telephone to me and said, hello, Matthew, how are you? And I was speechless. It was insane. It was absolutely crazy. And I thought, and I was—I literally didn't know what to say. I was, the, it was, you know, people say the blood drained from the, the body. That was how I felt. I didn't know how to process the experience that I, I was going through. And Sarah, my wife, was trying to talk because she realized something weird was going on and what she was trying to talk to me as well. And then suddenly I came to my senses and, and mum would about uh, hello. And the voice said, hello, it's Nanny. And it was Sarah's grandma had rung us. But for some reason, when the phone had rung and I heard this voice say, hello, it's Nanny, I heard my dead grandmother's voice. And it's a, it was a different voice. But for some reason, my brain messed up completely and utterly misunderstood the voice and completely misunderstood the circumstances and sent me into a mental shock which took me many seconds to recover from so these things happen they happen at completely unexpected moments and they can make us think say and do the most bizarre things yeah the thing going on here is that when you have a perception of something that's not real it gets to your brain or or circulates in your brain with the same circuitry as the as events that are real yes and so it's very difficult when at the receiving end you get this message that comes from the the channel of where real information comes from it's very difficult to make it to unpick it can i quote from the famous diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders the american one that's like the psychiatrist's bible in america i assume it's famous they talking about hallucinations here which is something i don't want to drop as quickly as you did in your episode on this they said hallucination is a sensory perception that has the compelling sense of reality of a true perception but that occurs without external stimulation and they also note that it's not just visual it can be auditory like like yours and uh, or touch there's a lovely story of a, a woman who she was working and her cat rolled up against her leg and she thought oh that's lovely and then she realized not that the cat had died the previous week and was coming back the, the the cat was in a cattery because she was having to work on the house or something but just that thing that something gave her this strong perception of her cat stroking her leg in the way they do when it was just wasn't there there's documented phenomenon that people think mobile phones vibrate in their pocket when there isn't one in their pocket yeah yeah it's the, the, these things are very well documented yeah yeah Ed, was that 
quote from the uh, DSM-4 uh, or the DSM-5? Do you happen to know? I would have picked it up in about 2016 or something. Yeah, yeah. so that's probably the DSM-5. Now, I want to talk about Tara. So she is an old friend. Uh, she, she's an old friend of ours in that she was a regular contributor to the discussions under the Unbelievable show when it was put online by Justin and the Christian Premier Radio. Yeah. So we had a lot of fun and maybe some frustration in interacting with Tara, whose views are not that close to ours. But she <laughs> she worked in an old people's home and and she was saying in response to a I think the Gary Habermas resurrection resurrection show, how she is so used to her patients being visited by people who don't you know, who don't exist, who presumably like loved ones who've died. So she said on this discussion, I've had two new patients just this week. They've told me about their visiting spouses. And she said, by the way, no one yet has talked about them as appearing ghostly. And I've heard dozens of accounts. Instead, they describe them as seeming very lifelike, as if the spouse is there in complete physicality. So, I mean, she she's not a psychologist i don't think maybe wouldn't say hallucination but she's saying these are the experiences people have maybe we should use hallucination as a as a fairly loose word you know we can't diagnose uh, an individual who we know almost nothing about from 2000 years ago based on a creed about them so it's a plausible event someone like peter could have experienced a very compelling experience that could easily categorize as a hallucination I think when Bart Ehrman wrote about it in one of his books, he said how hallucinations, obviously based on his research, are associated with uh, dead spouses a lot and other you know, close people and also religious figures. So that, you know, if there was closeness between the disciples and Jesus and they were very familiar living together for three years or whatever it was, that's not an unusual thing to imagine could have happened after Jesus died. Right. Yeah. Now, um, we didn't spend a lot of time on the hallucination aspect when we discussed it. I give the hallucination idea quite short thrift because I think it's very hard to establish at all, given the amount of time that's passed. It's as hard to establish as it is to establish fact. So I think suggesting that it's hallucination is as meaningful as suggesting that it happened literally, because for me, I can't separate the two in terms of reading the documents and trying to work out what happened in the past. So for me, it's far, far more likely that the accounts are doctored in one way or another, either people talking about it over periods of time and the story got embellished before it got written down, or after the fact that it was written down, people edited it and embellished it after the original writing down. One or the other is far more likely to me. So I spend so little time thinking seriously about the hallucination because I think it's far, far too difficult to establish with any reliability. I agree with that last point. I don't think when sceptics talk about hallucinations, they are saying this is what happened. Right. Here's the evidence for it. They're responding to the apologist who is saying, how do you explain this, Mr. Sceptic? Yeah. Uh, And... This is going back, going on to something that you said later on that maybe we could jump to and then come back uh, into my flow. Right. Uh, 
they that so in night and rose uh they were saying um oh the skeptic is just reduced to saying something happened yeah and i think someone who is countering their arguments needs to do more than just say oh some something happened i think when scholars like james crossley would say something happened and leave it there because it's not scholarship as you as you say it's just it's just speculation yeah you know scholars can't say oh that was hallucinations or this this or that they have to be proper scholars and just say things for which they can find evidence for Mm. right Um, and there is a I, i don't really like to to play this card in a conversation but i do think when we're having a, a somewhat academic discussion about claims, it is reasonable to point out that there is a, a noticeable and wrong-headed uh, shifting of the burden of proof to just say, well, all the skeptics can say is, because the, the claim itself must stand on its own, regardless of whether I believe it or not, or, or whatever, whatever I might say against claim. And there's an extraordinarily, or at least in my view should be, pretty ex- extraordinarily high bar of evidence for this kind of claim because the claim itself is so far outside the ordinary. And Ed, I think you said something about this in your write-up that you sent to us, uh, you know, in sort of the pre-game show. This kind of resurrection claim, it's very outside the norm. We don't see resurrections on a regular basis. And we don't likewise see appearances of Jesus to people on a regular basis, except maybe uh, on a piece of toast. (laughs) But my point is is not to be satirical at all. My point is to say that in the Night and Roche, whether deliberately or not, they managed to quite adroitly shift the burden through ad hominem attack against the skeptics so so that the evidence didn't have to stand to merit the claim. Okay, I still think, you know, tactically in our response, when they say, oh, all you're saying is something happened and it all sounds a bit lame, that's because you're in trouble. We come back and say, no, there's a perfectly plausible set of events that we can outline that would explain all of the data that it's reasonable to accept as things that did happen. Mm. And And hallucination is a plausible explanation. Yes. Regardless so I, of how I might how I might think about it personally, yeah. it still has a plausibility factor. And yes. the other point is, and I think one of your podcast co-hosts has made this point, the hallucination is more plausible than the actual resurrection. Oh, easily. Uh, they're, they're pretty common events. Yeah. So just he, as a question for the two of you, isn't that sort of what we're doing when we say something like, OK, Fine, but a claim of experience of seeing Jesus isn't itself evidence for the fact that Jesus was seen. Aren't we as skeptics when we challenge the notion on those grounds? In what way, in what way do you think that that sort of question is deficient? Okay, so I think this is the nub of where we're not agreeing. We can't just say there's nothing to see there, move along. In Judaism, there's, there have been loads of Messiah figures and John the Baptist would be another one. And yet a, a religion that's dominated the world has only come from one of them. And the evidence seems to suggest that the resurrection belief is what kept the religion going after, or the movement, I should say, movement going after the leader of the movement had been executed. Mm-hmm. Evidence seems to suggest that belief in appearances 
is what generated the resurrection belief. So, so I agree with all of them. Okay, so we've got something that we need to explain. If somebody in church says they saw Jesus, we'd just roll our eyes and it wouldn't be particularly influential on other people. But a leader who has been crucified, which is a kind of in Judaism is a disgraceful, shameful way to a Messiah to come to an end for them to be suddenly to say, oh, I saw I saw them. He's still alive in weeks or months or days or whatever after the crucifixion. That is something that's remarkable and has to be remarkable to influence other people and get this whole religion started. I see. So I think we we may have at least found the fulcrum of, uh, of the disagreement here. We, we may have found the pivot point um, because I actually still think that while there is something to be explained, I think that they are the ones that still have to explain it. So, well, no, they're they're saying I explain it by God stepping in and resurrecting Jesus. What's your what's your explanation? Well, and if we say, uh, well, something happened, move along, they'll say, no, gotcha. No. And then no, all, all the all the people who are wanting to believe what they want to believe will say, well done, apologies, you've got him there. Right, but that's not the that's not the idea I'm defending. I think what we are doing as skeptics, by and large, is saying, okay, you say that you've seen this Jesus and that's how the whole thing got started and all of that sort of thing. But it's an extraordinary claim. If I said to you today, I saw my dead grandfather and he's actually the one that influenced my career choice in my life, you wouldn't have to question whether some experience I had did in fact influence my career choice. Surely the claim that I saw my dead father wouldn't be convincing to you. And you would require evidence equal to that claim if I wanted you to believe that I saw my dead grandfather. And so that's where I'm pushing back. Not yeah. that there's something that has to be explained, but who has the requirement to do the explaining? I don't know if it helps to have near-death experiences as a parallel here. You have people who, you know, maybe were evil bankers or something, and they have a new near-death experience, and then they become... Uh, much more rounded people who are more community-minded and maybe even change their career, which is why I thought of that. You wouldn't say, oh, you're just making up this near-death experience, n- nothing happened. You'd say, yes, there's clearly evidence that from the, the way their behaviour changed that they had a really real and compelling experience. That is what I would say. I, I would absolutely yeah. agree that they had an experience. Yeah. So that's what? all I'm saying. I'm taking on board that the disciples had a, a experience that they really meant something to them and was very real to them. To which I wholeheartedly agree. We, yeah. we, there's, there's no disagreement on the table yeah. between any of us over that. The question, and, and I think the place that I prefer to push back, is whether the experience of the thing is proof of the thing that it claims. No, I don't think and, anyone around this, around this podcast is saying that. Right. But so that's why I'm saying the skeptical community is not the one that has an explanation to put forth. The burden of proof about the miraculous event itself, that there could have been a a Jesus that they actually did see. The burden of proof is not on the skeptic to explain how there wasn't some miraculous event. The burden of the miraculous event is actually on the Christians. They have to explain the cause and effect mechanism. 
or whatever mechanism you think might be there. If there is a miraculous event to be had, the people claiming the miraculous event must surely bear the burden of the evidence to equal the claim. Yes. Well, there's several ways of pushing back on this, and that's a completely valid one. If you add to it how, well, we've got this simple explanation that's, that's quite plausible, that that just takes the wind out of their sails rather than make them smugly go away and say, oh, the skeptic can only say something happened and feel they've got to win. Right. So that was that was actually sort of my point here, that <clears throat> Knight, Knight and Rose had subtly shifted burden uh, to the skeptic to, yeah. to say that we must, because they have made a miraculous claim, the burden is somehow on the skeptical community to prove that it wasn't miraculous. Yeah. And that seems to me to be the wrong way around. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to make an issue of it. It's just, uh, you know, it, the way I prefer to go about this particular idea. Yeah. Yeah. And that's partly why I, I'm not a big fan of suggesting that there was hallucination because the Christian can scoff at the hallucination for the same reasons that I alluded to earlier and go, well, well, that's not good enough. It's far more. I'm just going to stick with believing there was a real resurrection. Thank you. And and walk away. And that gets to what Andrew was saying. We haven't given them a reason to adequately doubt their explanation. They've just laughed at the hallucination because it's so improbable in their mind that they're sticking with their so their um their crucifixion. So I would rather use arguments and tactics to get them to doubt and question their proposition than give them reason to doubt mine. Because I don't know what happened. I've never pretended to know what happened, but the Christian does think that they know what happened. So I want them to defend that point and I want them to listen to my challenge to their point. And as soon as we get into the subject of me talking about what might have happened, whether it's a hallucination or whether it's a later edit, we've taken the focus off the resurrection. And I want the focus to be on the resurrection because that can't have happened. OK, yeah, there's a sort of point here that that's, we've just vaguely mentioned, uh, which I'll go talk through and then go back to hallucinations. Right. I haven't, haven't finished on that. <laughs> OK, the objection they said the, that the skeptic is only left with this objection that it's a miracle. That it's not or, or the reason for resisting it because of we skeptics are so against the miraculous that there's no way that we are going to bow to this amazing evidence that they think they're providing we're coming with an anti-miracle bias so therefore we can't accept it so we're being unreasonable yes and they said that's all that's all there that's the only problem they're saying and and you covered it but i would like to add something to that and that is really they've got a choice and neither side of the choice is going to work for them they could either say well resurrections happen all the time they're, they're kind of part of life in which case if jesus did rise from the dead then there's nothing there to suggest that jesus is anything special compared to anyone else or they say resurrections are so unlikely so rare so such a special special event that jesus resurrecting indicates how special he was and it's worth you know it's the foundation of our religion and hume talks about religion being founded on a miracle well, this, he's talking about Christianity. People are Christians and not Muslims because they believe the resurrection proves that their Messiah rose from the dead and he is the son of God and all the rest of it. If you're using the resurrection to as a foundation for all of that, it's got to bear a lot of weight. So it's got to be an exceeding unlikely event that you then show happened for us to have the shock and awe that, oh, yeah, OK, so Jesus was really special after all. So, OK, Jesus it is an exceedingly unlikely event. In which case, all the 
skeptics arguments saying so much more likely there's normal human frailties biases exaggerations all the stuff that we've been talking you or particularly you were talking about an episode the episode on this that kicks in as the much more likely explanation when i get on an airplane i don't have an anti-airplane crashing bias I'm just aware that that they don't crash more often than than they have successful takeoffs and landings. And likewise, I don't have an anti-miracle bias. It's just that the the natural world, you know, I've I've not seen a miracle. And still unbelievable. The, the thing that we press is show us how this thing works. Show us a miracle. We'll change our name to unbelievable. We go. <laughs> <laughs> we can be done with this pretty quickly. Um, you mean so believable? Yes, so believable. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Very nicely turned. But I, I don't. Now maybe there are skeptics who have anti-miracle biases. I'm not one. I've let people try to heal me even recently. Uh, by the way, listeners, no change. I'm still unhealed. I think it is fair to say that there are skeptics with an anti-miracle bias. But hopefully, we're not those skeptics. Though I must honestly confess, I have no idea. No, I've, what, I've got anti-miracle bias. What's that? I, I have an anti-miracle bias, but that's not what the reason for rejecting the resurrection. Okay, it's just not well evidenced. But to me, I've thought through my worldview with, with a lot of anguish and thinking and a lot of reading and everything. And my worldview now is naturalism which is a rejection of anything miraculous or spirits or ghosts or gods or God or whatever. And so I hold just to I might wrong, that, though, because... that's what I hold. And okay. so I would need something major to push me out of that worldview and a miracle would. And I'm exactly the same as that, Ed. And just to clarify to any Christian theist, whoever, who might hear this and misunderstand what it is you're trying to say, you're not saying it's impossible for you to believe in miracles. You're saying given the evidence that you've been presented with, you don't think miracles are possible, but that could change with the right evidence. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. and yeah, I'm exactly right. the same. So the, yeah. the critical bit there is let's have the right evidence. Yeah. Right. So I'm a practical materialist myself or naturalist, depending on which philosophy papers and articles you're reading. And, and part of that worldview is repeatability. So. I have a hard time taking any singular event and drawing conclusions from it. That's um, not to say that there can't be singular events from which we can draw conclusions. But I think as a materialist myself, we have to hold singular events and the conclusions we draw from them very carefully. We have to hold them quite lightly. And so repeatability, as I've said over and over, that's a key element in drawing any sort of rational conclusion. Yeah. That said, I think the religious folks, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Matthew, you're probably going to have to cut this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, I don't know what the extent of the natural world is. And I did say I don't know what it would take to convince me of a miracle. I have no idea. And I have said in the past that you could probably convince me of a miracle for bad reasons. But if we're going to be epistemologically and ontologically honest, then if there was some repeatable, demonstrable way to reproduce a miracle, well, then that would have to somehow become a part of the worldview. My problem with miracles is if there's ever been a miracle, 
and, and I honestly do not believe there has been, we don't have a cause and effect mechanism for anything so far that has had a miracle claim. And without a, a, some sort of a cause and effect mechanism, if you've got a singular event or something unusual that has happened, there's no way to rule a miracle in. An unexplained event is just that, unexplained. And you can't import miracle into the unexplained. Good. I'm, I'm going to carry on with my hallucination stuff. See that through. Hallucinations are individual things. You mentioned in the episode about an alpha member or alpha male, I forget the exact term, influencing others. Uh, and that's exactly how I see it. Um, it, it was you, Andrew, that, that mentioned this. And so if we have someone like Peter, who's actually mentioned first off in the Creed thing and in some of the Gospels as well, actually, as having a visitation or appearance by Jesus, and he is completely convinced that Jesus is raised, he will then be very influential on the other members of the group, both of his position and his presumably his character and all the rest of it. And that, to me, is something sufficient just to get things going. Other people start having hope and believing, and this whole psychological, I'm trying to think of the word, it's not triggering, it, it, it's where belief in one person makes other people much more likely to, to believe it as well. People did a trick on Loch Ness, uh, for the Loch Ness Monster, they, by uh, having a, a boat making some waves and then somebody getting very excited and said, yes, I saw Nessie, I saw Nessie. You get other people around believing that they saw Nessie too and reporting it. Uh, and that was like a kind of staged almost experiment to demonstrate this triggering effect of, of belief in one person generating belief in another. There was another one where a magician with bending a key in front of people by one person being convinced other people could be convinced much more easily. So this is what goes on. Another point you made, Andrew, actually, was that apologists love to do it when you say, OK, we've got a minimal facts. What are the explanations? And they go down the list and, oh, hallucinations, that's an explanation that uh, sceptics like. And then they say, well, OK, how about the appearance to the, to the 11 or, or whatever? How do you explain that with an hallucination? And how come all these people are having hallucinations together? That's ridiculous. But no, that's just one hallucination is quite sufficient to get the belief started. And then a different kind of experience is what's behind these group appearances. Or, you know, it's not difficult for us to imagine a very religiously charged meeting and people saying, oh, yes, Jesus was there and um, he appeared to us. Something that actually was quite mundane could be behind some of these uh, traditions and then Jesus appeared to the 11 which then decades later became Jesus walking through the walls and eating fish in front of them mm. Ed, on this topic you're a person I trust I've known Matthew for quite a while now he is someone he is you someone don't I trust, trust. I am a Windows user so he does, he does um, have his limits <laughs> So you are two people that I have come to trust. I have no idea when it will happen because I won't even think about it when it does. But in the future, sooner rather than later, you, you two, one of you will have said something to me. And I will repeat it to someone else as fact without attribution. And even if you're wrong about it, this is something you said a, a, a little while ago. We don't have a filter for true and false. All, all the experiences that we have come through the same circuitry. Mm. And so you are two people that I trust. And I will 
inevitably repeat things that you say to me as if they are fact, even if you tell me something that is wrong. And I don't know that the resurrection bit needs, the the multiple appearance needs more explanation than that. Because I think we do it all the time. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I am aware that it does happen that people make claims. And we do go about the idea of accepting the burden of proof for ourselves to deconstruct the claim. So I, I do know that that happens. It happens in the scientific world all the time. Right around the bicep two period, there was a claim that they had seen neutrinos traveling faster than the speed of light, and a bunch of scientists signed on to the fact that these neutrinos actually slightly broke the, the speed of light. And some other scientists who thought that that simply wasn't the case took it on themselves to deconstruct that idea. And in fact, of course, it was a it turned out to be what it has always turned out to be so far, and that is a slight equipment miscalibration, right? Yeah, uh, I remember so, that one. Yeah, yeah I and, do too. I'm sorry that I can't talk more intelligently about the details than that, but I did want to give back some ground because uh, I do think that you're right. Given a certain kind of claim that we feel attached to, or that we think you know that we think is wrongheaded somehow. We may have a quite strong attachment to that kind of claim and set out to accept the burden of proof and create a counter explanation. So on further reflection, you know, just while we've been sitting here talking, uh, I think I should give uh, at least half that ground back. Okay, so I think I'm happy now to finish on this idea of how do we explain these appearances. But I've got a little bit more when we come on to Paul, which we can do now. You were a bit skeptical of Paul's claim to have been a persecutor of the church yes we did express a little bit of suspicion of how bad he really was this was under the banner of actually no it, it was a little bit of that but it was there was a bigger context that this was where they were saying about enemy attestation yes and, they, right. and they, they put paul's testimony under the category of enemy attestation and our point was when paul gave his attestation he wasn't an enemy his Paul's testimony was he used to be an enemy and now he's not and he's attesting and they were saying Paul's attestation is enemy attestation. So yeah. I, I was it was all part of that objection. Yeah, I think sc- scholars will really take it on board that when Paul writes his letters, he is an eyewitness to himself. So he he isn't telling stories; he's talking about himself. And okay, I get it that you're used to. People who convert to Christians over-egging their pre-Christian <laughs> e- e- evilness. Yeah. Paul does say in his own words that he he persecuted the church. He says it in a letter, and this letter to me is probably the most secure letter of all of them because it is full of dirty laundry about his spats with Peter and that kind of thing. So the, the church is unlikely to have invented this as a letter of Paul. It's got all this sort of, I suppose you could almost say it's the criteria of embarrassment. We'll, we'll get onto that later. Scholars of all kinds are very pleased to say, oh, we've got Galatians and, and that tells us what Paul really thinks. He could be overrating things, but that's the level of where the errors are going to come in. It's not people making up stuff about Paul and putting it into his mouth. The joy of it is that in Galatians 1, we have Paul telling us about his Damascus Road experience. So this right. is the conversion. What Paul said was he was advancing in Judaism and all this, that and the other and very zealous. And blah, blah, blah. Paul's words, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased. And this is the key phrase to reveal his son in me 
so that I might pitch months and was um, then my immediate response was not to consult anyone then he went off to Damascus uh, he, he he went to Jerusalem then returned to Damascus all, all the rest of it so this is his Damascus Road experience that is written up in Acts as Jesus uh, appearing and other people fell over and there's a sort of confusion as to whether it was the voice was heard and the or the voice wasn't heard by other people. I don't know if you remember all this kind of debate over whether there's conflicts or not in the various stories in Acts about this. But we here have Paul's own words, and he said, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. So this is an internal experience, as far as we know, that the word isn't completely clear, but we can certainly interpret it as Paul is admitting that it's an internal experience he has. Yeah. And this Damascus Road experience is what it's talking about here, is what he seems to be referring to in that key passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that we dug into a bit earlier on. Okay, yeah. So Paul is saying, I had my experience of Jesus appearing to me. And he's using exactly the same Greek word. He appeared to me also as the word used in the creed for Jesus appearing to Cephas and to the Twelve and to the 500 and to James and to all the apostles. So there is good reason to think that these are internal experiences. I'd add to it that when it's written up in Acts, uh, it's mentioned three times, the event and then Paul talking about it to people, that uh, in one of them, Paul is talking to a Roman governor, I think. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So that isn't Paul's words. That's words that Paul has supposedly said to a Roman authority in the book of Acts. So it's not as authoritative as Paul's words in Galatians in terms of what Paul really thought. But still, it's, you know, a tradition in the church about what Paul thought of this experience he had. And he called it a heavenly vision, which to me is also an internal experience. So there is good evidence to think that these experiences that the church was happy that they they could well have been internal experiences from their point of view. And maybe it's a modern category anyway, whether it's internal experience or kind of Jesus objectively appearing to people. Maybe so it could be a vision rather than a, an experience that they could see. With yes, eyes. that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, now, I think Knight and Rose pushed back against this. I'm not. It certainly is used to push back against it. I'm not sure how, how muddled they were in the way they explained it. But there is this pushback against it, which is that the Jewish view of, of resurrection was of a very physical one. I think Entine Wright has said it as well, that the idea that a ghostly experience could be seen as a, interpreted as a resurrection is not on. So against that, I've got that these hallucinations aren't like ghostly experiences. And even Tara herself said, said the very words that and the diagnostic manual seems to push against it as well so there's that and there's also this in the rest of 1 corinthians 15 this whole discussion about uh jesus having a spiritual body instead of a natural body in his resurrection and so it looks to me like paul is trying to walk a tightrope between the church knowing that jesus appeared to people in a spiritual way and yet still this Jewish doctrine or idea that resurrection was physical had to be squashed together. And he solves it by Jesus having a body, but it's a spiritual body, not a natural body. I don't um, understand what is meant by a spiritual body. 
Well, that's the point. It's so muddled and we don't know what's going on that that's ringing bells for us. Yeah. But he does, in the end, he he admits towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that he's talking about the risen Jesus being a life-giving spirit. That's verse 45. So it's almost like he's admitting it for us, that Jesus, as he appeared to people, it was as this more of a spiritual thing rather than uh, as physically eating fish with them, which to me doesn't make sense anyway. It's all very odd. Because you've got Lazarus, who, according to the narrative, he died and four days later, uh, Jesus raised him from the dead and then he carried on living and he was a bit of, an, uh, of a thorn in the flesh of the authorities because he carried on living and was saying, yes, Jesus raised me from the dead. And that is fully physical, according to that narrative. And yet Jesus' one wasn't. According to the narrative, he mysteriously appears through walls and then disappears again. Or he appears to, in Matthew 28, he appears to the disciples and some of them doubted. It's in and out appearances. It's not just Jesus living with them. You know, Ed, just a couple of chapters before 1 Corinthians 15, so I'm pretty sure that this is in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. So you know, we get more spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. There's a, a passage, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, where we get the notion that young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. And yep. uh, now that you've said what you've said about this notion being pretty muddled and Paul seeming to make a, a sort of admission that this is a spiritual body and all that sort of thing. There was a sort of ontology at, at work at the time that seemed to make people, you know, if, if you claimed this kind of thing, oh, I had a vision, you know, I dreamed a dream or whatever, that was somehow a, you're, you're a more godly person if you have that sort of experience or make that kind of claim. And today, that sort of thing seems to still be at work. People that speak in tongues are quite often very highly regarded. I'm just taking a long way of agreeing that this is quite muddled. It was also very widely accepted at the time. You were highly thought of if you were given this gift of seeing a vision or dreaming a dream. Yeah. It's interesting that dreams and visions are put together. A dream is clearly in your head. No one disputes that. There's no physical reality that you're seeing or external reality you're seeing when you have your dream. It's sort of it all happens within you. Right. Whereas visions, on the other hand, are like the So now that we're talking about this, I wonder from a psychological perspective, what would actually separate a vision seen in the New Testament from a hallucination? What could a person claim about a legitimate vision that couldn't be said? of a hallucination. Could you ever distinguish between the two? Uh, yes, I think the empty tomb would. I love the story of the snowman with those cartoons with Raymond Briggs, I think. And it's a sort of famous Christmas cartoon that lasts about Frosty 10 snowman. minutes with Walking in the Air, uh, that lovely song. Are you familiar with me? I know Frosty the snowman, but I'm no, not sure. No, OK, yeah. it's different from that. OK, it's a beautiful cartoon that's loved, all part of Christmas now in Britain. Boy makes a snowman. The snowman comes to life in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve. And they have all these beautiful adventures together and go off to the North Pole eventually in fantastic drawing and singing. And then uh, they dance around in the meat center and he's given a beautiful scarf. Then they all come back and everything. And then he wakes up in the morning and it's thawed a bit and the snowman's barely there. It's all very sad. And he thinks, oh, the whole thing was just a dream. But then he sees he's still holding the scarf in his hand. So... The scarf 
makes it from a dream or a vision, as you could say, into reality. Mm. And that's what the empty tomb serves as if, if it was a re- if it was real. Yeah. So I get what you're saying there. I guess the big question would be how to demonstrate that they are actually related to a supernaturally empty tomb. Okay, so there's all kinds, of, all kinds of empty tombs in the world and misidentified yeah. markers and all that sort of thing. And so we would still have the further problem of, hey, here's this empty tomb and it's empty supernaturally. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, on our podcast, we had someone called Matthew Harkel on. His thesis was that the empty tomb was the trigger. I, I was saying how... To me, this vision that we could categorize as a hallucination was a trigger that got the whole thing rolling. Well, he thought the empty tomb could have been the thing that got the whole thing rolling. And of course, in that culture, people did nick bodies from tombs. But I I find the whole tomb thing a bit implausible. Me too. Marvelously crafted bit of English understatement. I I find the tomb a a bit implausible. So beautifully done. Yeah. People tend to accept the tomb and they argue about whether it was empty or not. But I think the whole tomb thing is implausible. Well, you mean Joseph Arimathea putting Jesus in a special tomb? You mean that? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I agree because this guy just turns up how conveniently just to with a spare tomb that he can put the body in. Yeah. the, The whole character of Joseph Arimathea feels like a narrative ploy that's brought in just to put Jesus in a special tomb. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that he had to be bold, it says in Mark, he boldly went to Pilate. Well, that shows that it's yeah. well outside normal practice yeah. to take crucified bodies of insurgents Criminals. and yeah. put, put them in rich people's tombs. Yeah. Gentlemen, I have run up against a hard stop for me. Please do not stop on my account because there's more work to be done. OK, guys, look, thank you both. And we'll talk. Right. OK. So OK. Let's carry on. Okay, so um, we were deep in Paul, I think, and I can round that off. Yeah, Uh, so, um, and you were making a point about you thought that we were potentially being a little bit unnecessary by uh, doubting or or calling into question the the validity of Paul's previous life. Yes, that's right. I take your point that it's not enemy attestation because he's not an enemy when he's the witness describing these events. But I think it's something that needs to be explained how he had this change of heart. But people have change of hearts, yeah. you know. Yes, he does. And when I think back to, I haven't read Paul's letters for a very, very long time. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm unmotivated to study them <laughs> in deep detail. And so it's very possible that I'm misremembering. I remember as a young child growing up in missionary school, as in a school for missionary children, mm. they're being being taught that Paul was a wicked, horrible person and murdered Christians and looked out to murder Christians. But that's not what I remember reading when I actually got round to reading those letters. Yeah, he does say it a few times. I think this one he says, "I intensely persecuted the Church of God and tried to destroy it." Right. But see, the word "persecuted" there could cover a multitude of activities from being unkind on Twitter to stabbing them through the heart in, in, a, in yeah. an intentional act to to kill them. So there's a whole load of stuff that gets covered by that. And persecuted is, is a word that's gone through multiple translations. So we don't really know what was actually originally. Well, somebody knows what was originally said because someone's yeah. got the Greek somewhere. But as an English only speaker, I don't know what that persecuted comes from, but I could probably find out. Yeah, I've never looked into that, that word. Yeah. So 
I think all we're saying is that it's a minimal fact that Paul was someone who was resisting Christianity yeah. and he became a Christian. And that's a fact that people explain by the resurrection. And so I, they, it kind of adds weight to their argument. And I hope I've said enough on it all to yeah. dissipate yeah, I that. Think, yes, yes, you have. Just as a slight aside, I think another slightly related point I'd bring up is when you hear people's testimonies and a classic example of testimony podcast to listen to is the side b podcast which has lots of people who, whose testimony stories are being told and it's especially interesting are the the adult convert stories and quite often there are people who self-report that they were obnoxious anti-christian atheists and quite often when you get down into the nitty-gritty of what the conversion is about certainly from the male perspective Quite often when it comes to the conversion point, there's a Christian woman involved at some point in there. There's a love interest. And quite often that crops up as part of the story. And so you you do wonder if as soon as the love interest comes in, that critical thinking and uh, rationality drops slightly somewhat because the heart is talking and the, the heart is talking very loudly here. And while that's not explicitly said in Paul, you do kind of wonder if Maybe there were other motivations at play there. Yes, it's not said. And yes, this is pure speculation. But I have this kind of mindset is there's a pattern here. Somebody self-reports to being bad. Something dramatic happens. They've converted and they, they could be. And there is probably something else in there that we're, isn't clear. We're not being told about. Maybe it's a love interest. Maybe it's something else and fits a pattern and so i feel like i'm justified in calling into question how bad the persecution really was okay yeah that reminds me of a conversation i had with a friend on your topic actually uh missionaries i was saying to him well you know when in missionary circles the native uh, population uh become christians because of they uh, get fed and that's called rice christians yeah I said, well, what's the, what is it that when you have uh, someone becoming a Christian because of he wants to uh, get along with a woman who's already a Christian? Uh, and my friend got back straight and said, oh, yeah, I know what that's called. That's called Oats Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Rice um, Christians and Oats Christians. <laughs> I have never heard that before. Well, that, that is brilliant. that is a genuine conversation I have with a friend. It's not a joke that I'm telling you. Oh, you should. But, but tell it's a joke from now on, everybody. <laughs> that that is just brilliant. That has tickled me. Thank you, Ed. It's been worth it just for that. That is just fabulous. Actually, uh, do you know of David Pawson? Do you remember him? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. The name vaguely familiar. I might need okay. reminding. Okay. Well, it was his son anyway that I was talking okay. to. Okay, next on the list of these minimal facts is the conversion of James. Yeah. I can't remember what your take on it was, but I remember thinking... We didn't thinking, cover it for very long. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we covered it for very long. I think yeah. we're a bit of a, yeah, so what, and moved on, I think. Yeah, Justin has it in his list. So it, it is something someone I respect treats as serious. And I think the point is, how do you explain Jesus' brother, James, mm -hmm. who the Gospels report having a strong aversion to Jesus and his ministry and saying he's mad and what's mm -hmm. going on here. That's in several gospel stories, particularly Mark 3, he's out of his mind, Jesus' brothers were saying. And yet suddenly there he is as a leading light of the movement after the resurrection. So people join the dots and say, 
what can explain this? And the only thing that could possibly explain this is the resurrection. Right. And so it's further evidence to the resurrection. So I guess I'm happy. I Certainly James being key member of the church and actually being killed. It's one of the few people when they try this martyr argument was actually killed associated with religion. It's hard to say if he was martyred for his faith. That's a bit of a stretch from what Josephus tells us. But that's what we've got now. Well, even Richard Borkman, who is a pretty well-known conservative mm. scholar who does a lot of work on the kind of eyewitness side, and he's borderline towards being a, a, an apologist. And he's been on Justin's show quite a lot. I know he's been on Unbelievable quite a lot and kind of arguing, say, against Bart Ehrman about how good the Gospels are as reliable sources for us. Anyway, he, in his writing, has doubted that James became a, a kind of like a believer, a follower of Jesus after the resurrection or crucifixion, I should say. Uh, he thinks it, it happened before because he thinks he accompanied Jesus and learned his teaching for at least a significant part of Jesus' ministry. So that's something from a very conservative scholar. I could probably be more convinced by that line of reasoning, I think, rather than the resurrection converting James. Yeah, yeah. I think this holds very little water because what we have, the kind of data points we have are James being a key part of the church after it all and James being told in, say, in Mark, which is the earliest and therefore the most reliable of the Gospels we've got, saying Jesus is out of his mind. Now, let's compare this with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's clearly there. You know, tradition has it that she's central in the church after the crucifixion. And that she is also in the same group that came to Jesus and said he's out of his mind, take him away in Mark. So we've got the same two data points for Mary. But nobody ever says of Mary, oh, well, look how she changed it. That that must be evidence of the resurrection. And the reason mm. people never say that is because we have another story about Mary being at the cross and very supportive of Jesus and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's only argument from silence that there isn't a similar story about James being there at the cross or being, you know, within the in-group of Jesus before the cross. It's only because there's no story like that that people are basing this whole argument. Yes, one would imagine that James would be there with his mother at the cross, wouldn't you? If, if his well, mother was there, we'd imagine James would be there. Well, but the gospel authors chose to talk about Mary being at the cross. Um, I don't know why James should be there. Well, supporting the mother, presumably, or the mother saying, I need you there or whatever, or carrying something. Well, the, the, the or... whole point of the story was that Jesus hands over his his sort of du duties of a son to... To John. Um, Is, was it John? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a reason to omit mentioning James. Yeah. I'm not saying J James was likely to be there at the cross. I'm just, he, you know, if the other followers of Jesus fled, then why not him as well fleeing? Yeah. And maybe it's safer for women to... If James wasn't there and fled with the disciples, then that presumably would be evidence that James was converted and was a, a senior person in this movement. Yeah, but we can't talk about speculation on one hand and then say it's evidence on the other. Yes, that is true. That is, <laughs> that is true. What I'm saying is, to make this argument, you have to argue from silence Yeah. in a way that uh, some arguments from silence work only where the absence of something that you would strongly expect to be strongly, in, the, yeah. in the case. But yeah. there's no reason to expect any mention of James in the gap between when he's mentioned saying Jesus out of his mind in Mark and appearing as a, a pillar of the church 
fairly soon after the um, resurrection. But you say pillar of the church, but he's by no means as dominant as Paul has become. Paul Uh, is the one that modern Christians look to as being the person who uh, cemented out the, the doctrines of Christianity. Well, Paul in Galatians, this this letter I'm so keen on, describes going to Jerusalem to check things out with the pillars of the church. That's my phrase, not his. And James and John. No, James and Peter are the two people he names. Two names, right. Yeah, yeah. Is it possible it's a different James? Uh, there or is are confusion we confident over that this, it's Jesus' uh, brother? But um, I've never, never heard that as being a possibility. So there must be something to make it clear that James. Okay. I pretty. I think it's probably. I think Galatians itself says that James is the brother of our okay. Lord or something like that. All right. I think that's a ge- big thing that people argue about on this uh, to counter Jesus mythicism. Yeah. See, that's the other thing. I. Why is the conversion of James really so convincing? I know what you've. I understand what you've said about the conversion and the strength of the belief of James. And if James wasn't convinced that Jesus rose then he wouldn't have done that. I I kind of get that, but I'm still not seeing how important it is in the structural things because it still could be something that could be fictionalised. There's literally enough written about James that it could be inserted fiction. Yes, his previous hostility to Jesus could easily be inserted fiction. But him being a pillar of the church, if you're going to be a historian about these things obviously nothing is absolutely 100% clear and secure in history but if you're going to be a historian about it you say yes it's highly likely that James the brother of Jesus was a leading leader of the church from fairly early on right okay so that's the argument and that's why I I don't think it it works in that's this case okay now just to play a little bit more around with this though there are people who say that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't actually a physical resurrection anyway there are christians who say that and maybe the church grew out of that knowledge that there was belief in the resurrection but not a physical bodily resurrection that some people affirm but a different type of resurrection whatever that could be is anybody's guess and maybe could the religion still have grown from that small seed without an actual physical resurrection the way Christians think of it today? I think so. And I throw in the mix this argument that people make that, well, the Jews believed in a very physical kind of resurrection. And so resurrection, resurrection belief may be based on this more ethereal kind of resurrection or raising from the dead, certainly, morphed into a belief in a very physical resurrection. Right. And that's why it's only in the latest stories that you have Jesus eating fish in front of people. Yeah. So these facts could still be true without a physical resurrection. The only thing that lays, lends credence to a physical resurrection is the empty tomb part. Because Paul's, so, experience, because Paul's people, experience wasn't yeah. a physical experience. Le- Mike Lacona is very honest, I think. And so he went in a debate he will not use the empty tomb because he doesn't think it's a, an established minimal fact. Yeah. So he will use really the, the appearances as the key aspect. And he combines it with this argument about Jews only believed in physical resurrection to make the visions into there must have been something physical there. Right. I put it the other way around and say, well, if they believe in, in a resurrection 
or a raising from the dead that then became a Jewish style resurrection, it had to be physical to make to in their minds. And so that physicality got added to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, to me, that makes more sense. It sounds much more plausible to me. It, it helps to fit the evolved narrative that we, we read with more details being added in later documents. Yeah. Yeah. But another thing they say, which I don't think works, is resurrection belief was only for the end of the age. And so it was a very remarkable thing for people to believe that Jesus had been resurrected rather than brought back to life. And but it's all very confusing to me. I don't quite get this. But because uh, if you have resurrections in the Old Testament and in the ministry of Jesus and Jesus himself was raised from the dead. So and it's all pretty similar language. So yes. if they later did their theology and said this is the end of the age resurrection come forward well good luck to them i don't think it's evidence of anything no calling it you know someone raised the dead then becoming oh this is resurrection as this concept of the end of the age then that's it's just you know ideas developing mm. there's no evidence there for anything i think i've done all of the minimal facts that that are minimal facts that we have talked about and you've talked about but we haven't done the empty tomb except right. to say it's definitely not a minimal facts. And this is where this criteria of embarrassment comes in. Okay. Yes, we spent a bit of time talking around that, I yes. seem to remember. And that, that actually is something that, that did slightly wind me up, the way, the way you talked about it, okay. because it is a thing in New Testament scholarship that is talked about by non-conservative scholars. Right. Um, and Mark Goodacre is a perfect example. So he studied at Oxford, He's probably a Christian, but he's definitely not an apologist and a conservative. He's just interested in in the evidence and Christian origins is the kind of thing he would talk about. And he is aware of and teaches on in his lectures the criteria and the criteria of embarrassment is one of the standard criteria. He does a lovely little 12 minute talk on it in his podcast called NT Pod, which I strongly recommend. Okay. Uh, I'll see if I can find that and stick it in the show notes. And so check yeah, out the show notes, listeners, for, for things that we've been talking about. Yeah, lovely. Um, and he is sceptical of the criteria of embarrassment for various reasons, but he doesn't completely dismiss it. He says it's sort of troubling and we've moved on from it a bit. But um, it's, he's not just completely dismissing it as, as hogwash. He's great to listen to, and I strongly recommend um, if people are in, want to know more about these criteria, to listen to all of his little 10, 12-minute slots on the various criteria yeah. and all so, the other stuff he does. Right. And I think one of the points that we were making in our episode was when you do try to investigate criteria of embarrassment as a historical process – you are overwhelmed with examples of apologists using it to try to prove the minimal facts of the resurrection. That seems to be its niche. There's very little use of something that could come under that banner outside of that extremely narrow context. And certainly outside of New Testament uh, historicity, it's vanishingly small. And I think I only found one or two examples of it, and it took a lot of hard work to find an example yeah. of it and the best example i found one that was on the paulo Gia podcasts and uh, youtube channel which i believe is a link to it on episode 80 in the show notes there so yeah. it was very very hard to find anything that was not related at all to the new testament yeah 
Yeah. So Mark doesn't make that point, but he does make other points of why he's, he thinks it's a bit weird. Right. Basically, if you're embarrassed by something, why would you write about it? Yeah. You've got so much material to write about with Gospels and things. So if you're embarrassed, then you leave it out. And just because it's true doesn't mean you put it in. Yes. And um, which I can't remember if I actually said this on our episode. It does for me, it fits a standard storytelling narrative arc. You've got your hero having a great life. They have a dip, a, a tragedy. And then they overcome their tragedy and it turns into triumph. And that's your standard storytelling arc. You can see it in Top Gun. You can see it in Days of Thunder. You can see it in many other very, very big movies, high grossing movies. And so the existence of something like that, for me, isn't actually confirming of its facts. It's For me, it's confirming of its dramatic storyline narrative arc. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the classic one that Mark said was... An example of greater embarrassment is Jesus being baptized by John. Right. If Jesus is this great overall Messiah who's more important than, than John and everything, you, you wouldn't want to have him being baptized by John. Interesting. John See, I would never have thought that that, that moment would be a criterion of embarrassment moment. It, it just doesn't feature for me. It was always sold to me as Jesus did it because he wasn't ready to start his ministry because he hadn't really started his ministry at that point, had he? Or yeah. at least it was early days. So this was about kickstarting his ministry. Yeah. And so yeah. it wasn't it was a, a jump start rather than an embarrassment. So I'm yeah. a bit puzzled to find it come under the banner of embarrassment. Yeah. Well, so maybe it's not very good criterion. <laughs> <laughs> basically. It wasn't embarrassing enough for the for Mark to Mark the gospel writer to leave it out. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So this all becomes relevant with the key argument that people use for the empty tomb, which is that women are the witnesses. Yeah. And this just is fails on so many levels. It does. Uh, I think so too. So there's the one you mentioned, which is well, if you're going to talk about a story of an empty tomb, you would have to have women discovering it first because they're the kind of people who go to empty to uh, go to tombs to do things yeah it's a sort of women's thing yeah so that that's great that's 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 a good one the one i like is that mark seems to be he always enjoying the embarrassment he see it, it it's he couldn't lay on thick enough because what he's done is taking the whole story the witnesses of of jesus ministry are the disciples and they're increasingly described as stupid and dim and cowardly and all the rest of it they have a terrible press in mark implausibly so it's ridiculous the kind of things that they don't understand and they completely bog up and flee just before the crucifixion and then the witnesses come in these new set of witnesses come in from nowhere and that's the women and they witness jesus's crucifixion and they witness his burial uh, sort of from afar and then they witness the empty tomb. And then the women bog up completely because of Mark says very clearly that they fled and told no one. And so Mark absolutely relishes the idea that there isn't good attestation of the empty tomb. It's not only is it women, it's also they don't tell anybody. So these are the worst witnesses you could possibly have. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> and how did he know they saw it if they didn't tell anybody? Well, I this is my theory. I think I've read it in scholarship, but it's it's not a strongly held one. But I think it works. And that is that Mark knows that he's actually 
putting it on a stretch here and telling people something that they haven't heard before when he describes the empty tomb, because Mark is our very first witness of the empty tomb. Nobody before him has mentioned it in Christian literature that we're aware of. And then the other gospel writers pick up on it and then the church farmers and all the rest of it. So Mark is our very first voice about the empty tomb. And so he could be saying, I know you've never heard of this story of the empty tomb, but here it is. It happened. And this is this is why it's only come out now that the women eventually have told their story. And then Mark's gospel ends with the women fleeing, not telling anybody. And when the other all the other three of the gospels have men witnessing the empty tomb. So Mark, so they correct what Mark has done by adding men. And they also, of course, adjust it so that the women do tell people. What Mark's aim is seems to be rejected and overwritten by the other gospel writers. And you do have male men attesting the empty tomb. So what's the problem? That is, there's no embarrassment here when it's the other three gospels. You have a story of women, as you'd expect, as you said, Matt, women being the ones to find the empty tomb. And then very quickly, you've got men checking on the women and yes, men confirm the empty tomb there's guards in matthew and then the disciples in luke and in john so there you go and then one of them has an angel with a flaming sword or something guarding the tomb don't doesn't they this is the gospel of peter right which is second century and tremendous fun we don't have much of it but we do have the empty tomb story right Uh, jesus walks out of the tomb like a massive cross Which actually, which Mark Goodacre's got into, and he thinks it's a copying mistake, and it means crucified one. The crucified right, one okay. comes out because um, it, it is ridiculous. And, and my favourite bit is that the kind of people of Jerusalem come out with their deck chairs and set them out, ready to see the scene because they know it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you see, and as soon as you start including those other even later more embellished stories you start to see much more clearly the 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 growth of this story as soon as you as soon as they start cutting it off when it starts becoming too much to believe then you're managing to fool the modern population into believing something that's a myth yeah yeah but there is something else that bothers me about this whole finding the tomb story and i this is something that i didn't bring up in our conversation in episode 83 and that is the layout of the tomb now i was always taught that the tomb had quite a large entrance that you could walk into and that the stone had to be rolled over to cover the entrance and it was a massive stone like a huge wheel which was on a slope in a groove and it's uphill from the hole and then you you let it roll down so it blocks over the tomb and you chock it so it can't be rolled away but if you take that chock out it continues rolling down the hill so how do you then get the, this massive stone back up the hill to reseal the tomb? So there's so much about the practicalities of how this could possibly work that makes so little sense for me. Because two women can't turn up at this tomb, take off this chop, this massive stone, roll off downhill. They go and do what they need to do to the body with the, the anointing, etc. Come back. How are they going to get the stone back? If multiple men can't do it, two women aren't going to be able to do it. So there's whole practicalities about how this could possibly work in finding the empty tomb. Just leaves me scratching my head thinking, who could possibly think that this could work? I've heard it said that the description of the tomb 
fits much better with late first century tombs than tombs that were early first century. Right. Well, the description I've just given. No, the description in the Gospels. OK, so that that would be an explanation that that the that this well, this is a made up story. Basically, there's someone called Robin Walsh, who's a Florida university or something academic and she has sort of stirred things up by pointing out how mark was written in rome and it does have a it's not just a a sorry jewish document it's written in greek after all and there was a big trope in in the the more classical world you know greek roman world rather than the jewish world of making up empty tombs as a way of showing the importance of the person you're writing about Right. Uh, is something that uh, uh, Richard Price used to talk about, but nobody listened. But um, no, Robert Price, sorry, uh, she, she's in in her work. She's pointed out there's about 30 examples of, oh, when they found the tomb empty. And isn't that amazing right. in either novels or in, in classical literature? Around about the same period or significantly later or? That uh, I'm getting this from when she was interviewed by Mark Goodacre on NT Pod. Actually. OK. And she didn't say you 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 didn't know. Okay. There's a book. It cost about ninety quid. Wow. <laughs> so maybe wait for it to come out in paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, academic books do normally have quite a higher markup. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the women as evidence for an empty tomb just doesn't work. Uh, there's the other material of why should there be a tomb at all? Yeah. Um. Uh. The the practice there is some practice of bodies being taken down from crosses so they're not left hanging overnight as a special thing in Jerusalem or in Palestine. But the picture is that it's a very unusual for bodies to be given back to the family of a crucified victim. Yeah, they're just throwing it in an open grave, weren't they? Just an open pit. Well, the, uh, yes, I, I think that's what happened to Jesus. But the typical Roman thing was to leave them on crosses and let uh, birds eat them for carrion and that sort of thing. It was absolutely gruesome. Yeah, um, horrid. Yeah. And but there's some evidence that in Palestine they did allow for local sensibilities taking bodies down. And yeah, I think a communal pit. It, it says I am very minded to believe this creed thing. And it does say Jesus was buried. I'm happy to accept that in all likelihood Jesus was buried. But in a rich person's tomb that you could visit and say, oh, it's now empty. That sounds to me highly dubious. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, I think in Alexandria, is it Philo? One author talks about practice, and I think it's around about this time, and it's only on the birthday of the emperor that occasionally people can make special application and be given the the bodies of their crucified loved ones. So it's a really special, special. And right. Jesus isn't just any old crucified criminal. He's an insurrectionist, the, the worst kind from the Roman point of view. Right. So um, Even if they crucified him by mistake not realizing he wasn't an insurrectionist that's what they thought he was and um so that's that would be the laws or practices under which he would have been killed and buried yes if they thought he was guilty of that kind of heinous crime then they wouldn't give special dispensation to that would they yeah that's right yeah far more likely the petty thief barabbas yes that's right yes exactly but again but now, now that i've brought him up though so the Barabbas bit right at the beginning of this whole sordid weekend, is that also something added in to? Uh, yeah, I think Barabbas means son of the father or something. So it sounds like made up bloke. Right. Joseph of Arimathea, 
also has that name because Arimathea is supposedly a Hebrew town, but actually it means something in Greek, meaning good disciple. Right. Good, good disciple town. So Joseph came from good disciple town. <laughs> right. OK. So if you're going to read it as something in Greek rather than something in Hebrew, then um, that also looks highly suspicious. Right. OK. bit like Clark Kent coming from Smallville. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Well, even more, even worse. <laughs> good disciple town you know yeah yeah he sounds like a made-up character to, as, as you assessed to, yeah. to me so with all these little bits plugged in that's got to be even with if we grant some of these minimal facts with all these other superfluous bits of detail that are plugged in around the edges of the story it just adds evidence to the suggestion that there's lots of made-up stuff here and we can't really be confident about important details yeah that's right yeah and, and i think with these minimal facts they don't get you where you need to be if you're an apologist and so if you're trying to throw in these these details they're not going to be securely confirmed historically at yeah. all yes and i think there's a very key point on that matter is the minimal facts are post hoc rationalization these aren't minimal facts that have convinced the people that are selling them these are minimal facts that the people who already believe it are trying to use to sell it to us. Well, they, they want to think of an argument. And for years, they had an argument based on the reliability of the Gospels. And they realised that as more scholarship more and more was saying, no, we can't rely on the Gospels. They, well, it was Gary Habermas had this innovative move to say, OK, let's start again and just talk about facts that scholars do agree with. Can we establish a resurrection from that? He thought he could and wrote his thesis on it and he's sort of lived lived on it since. But um, <laughs> Yeah, which we, is we weird because I find him an utterly unconvincing person as a character. I've heard him speak a couple of times on a couple of podcasts. I find him totally, totally unconvincing. His his style and presentation, sometimes I'm not even sure he believes what he's saying. He, I really, it's, he's like John Lennox, the two of them. I really find the two of them really, really unconvincing characters. Yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, Lennox. Then that's a personal thing. Lennox, I, 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 there's something in me that you, you kind of react to people who you think you aren't reliable, aren't, aren't being honest for themselves. Put it that way. Yeah. I don't react to Habermas that way. He, he, he's. I'll try and find it, and, and so you can put it in the show notes. The unbelievable episode with him and my man James Crossley. Right. I think he's excellent, and Habermas is careful not to overextend his case. So I feel he's been quite straight and honest in that. Right, he's okay. saying he needs to call in NDEs to to establish that people can rise from the dead and that sort of thing. That's that, where Habermas loses me because I know he's a big, big fan of NDEs and he loses me at that point. Completely. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that he admits that you need to pull them in to get over the line, as it were. Yeah. To me, he's saying, OK, he's being kind of honest about the actual resurrection evidence from these minimal facts and all the rest of it. Yeah. But if he needs to pull in something like that, then surely that's tacit admission that the minimal facts on their own aren't quite good enough. Uh, exactly. That's why I'm impressed with his honesty. Right. OK. okay so he needs yeah. a new tactic then. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. OK. Is there anything else you want to, because I'm watching the time now, Ed, and, and we're moving on. Is there anything else that you wanted to pick up uh, on the episode that we discussed or, or anything that we might have uh, missed? There's a little thing, which is my, my, my hobby horse, right. on the resurrection, which I've actually come up with since the 
still unbelievable chapter. Right. And that is it struck me how secret the resurrection events are. Secrecy is a big deal in Mark's gospel. It's a big theme, this secrecy theme that you see it comes up again and again and again. But actually, the whole resurrection is entirely secret that only a few disciples and women actually experience anything associated with the resurrection. There is no, well, it's the guard story, I think, is pretty well the only exception. And that is very few people who are kind of serious scholars give it any time at all. Yeah, it's funny, that guard story, that gives me echoes of Paul's release from prison. There's a similar thing there as well. Guard fell on his knees and was converted along with all his family. Yeah. Well, it's just the idea that that, uh, guards could sort of say, oh, we fell asleep and they they think they wouldn't get kind of prosecuted for for saying and yeah. uh, and that the, the guards were only placed a day too late so what's all that about it's just it's all just implausible yeah why would it and, why would there be guards anyway yeah yeah it's and matthew does go for some implausible stuff uh, more than the other gospels i've uh, always said never trust anyone called matthew <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the guard story i think all of the resurrection events are completely hidden away with just a tiny number of witnesses and then yeah. suddenly ta-da, according to the book of acts about seven weeks later people are preaching about it and that's the first time that it's announced to the world uh, when it's far too late to do any checking and now i'm not sure what checking you could do anyway because of jesus was in a communal grave yeah so the, the whole thing even in its time was not something that an outsider would begin to believe it's all just people telling stories Okay, so one of the things that's brought out by Christians, I've heard this argument, so I'm pretty sure you have heard this counter as well, is that if the Romans knew Jesus was dead and these resurrection stories were circulating, they could have just presented the body. Yeah. Would they would the Romans really have gone and gone? Oh, well, he's in that pit somewhere. Let's go and dig it up and sift through the bodies until we find the right one. Would they really have done that? Well, even if there was a, a tomb that nobody would you know if Romans said oh well, here's the body they say oh well, you just planted it it's, it just doesn't work at all you dismissed it really well on the episode when you covered it as Pilate's supposed to foresee the spread of Christianity several centuries yeah. later and make a move to fend that off yes quite what what if based on modern knowledge are pointless yeah yeah I, I thought you were spot on with that Oh, thank you. <laughs> Took me two and a half hours to get you to say I was spot on. <laughs> That's what happens when you wear people down. <laughs> yeah. OK, so uh, obviously I, I could talk talk more, but I think all the things that I really get exercised about, or most of them I've managed to squeeze in somehow. All right, then. Thank you so much, Ed. It was a pleasure to have your original email talking about this. It's always great to talk to you. We should have had you on much, much sooner. Dear listeners, if you don't already subscribe to Ed's podcast, uh, Doubts Aloud, I highly recommend it. Him and his co-hosts are all very thoughtful. Ed's chapter in the Still Unbelievable book is also a chapter worth reading. He is one of the few people who've actually put loads and loads of references and notes at the bottom of their chapter. So it's worth reading just for that. Thank you so much, Ed. We look forward to having you back on again. We'll work out however that will be. It won't be this year, obviously, because we're we're back in December. Sorry, nearly in December. We're back at the tail end of November. So have a wonderful Christmas, uh, Ed, and 
whenever we talk to you again next we'll talk to you then cheers thanks all right thanks cheers thanks matt you have been listening to a podcast from reason press do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard do you have a topic that you would like us to cover please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.